song. Well, this morning, let's uh, turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 25. I also should, I forgot, I my apologies to Debbie uh, for not making these known in Kate Travers. Uh, he underestimates the, the, the weakness of this brain here. And so uh, I've got to be told twice before I get something through my head. Uh, so these are daily diaries. And these are always uh, lovely uh, from the Lord's Day Observance Society. Uh, daily diary for the whole year. A verse for each day. And you can plan out your day. You can put little reminders in there. So there are some out on the uh, on the table outside. And uh, also a magazine uh, called Remember the Sabbath Day to Keep It Holy. And uh, this is again, by the Canadian Lord's Day Association, and that is really a, a, an advocacy group that uh, promotes the observance of the Lord's Day. God gave it as a blessing, and uh, we want to, uh, and that's been part of our society's cultural heritage, to observe the Lord's Day and keep it as holy as, and free of clutter as possible. The world is always trying to get in, and we need that one day in seven. God knew that we needed it, so he gave it to us. And so this magazine is to really keep us reminded of why it is that God gave us that day. So uh, I'll, I'll put these back in here as well. Matthew 25. And uh, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked? 
you were sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Many will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to uh, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, this is the last sermon that Jesus gives before uh, the final hours of his life. As, as the, we begin now in chapters 26, 27, and 28, in what we call the passion narratives. The passion narratives. Uh, the most significant events in world history. The most significant event in world history. We are going to be looking at in the next number of weeks, uh, uh, possibly months, uh, and uh, the death of Jesus, uh, the circumstances surrounding the death of Jesus. And uh, so please be in prayer, please be in prayer every week for the services out there, We're praying that God would impress upon us the greatness of his love, because not only is this the greatest event in history. It's great because it expresses the greatest thing in world history. And that is the love of God. You can't forget that. That it's great not only because, well, it fulfills many Old Testament prophecies. It's great because of the conversions of the Jews and the Romans. It makes for a great story. None of those things make it great the way we want to remember. Because it was great because it was the greatest manifestation of God's love to the world and to you. That's why it's significant to you. And hopefully, as we move through, you'll say, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you. I, I have seen the love of God in a way that I've never seen before. And of course, that is typified for us in what we're doing this morning in the Lord's Supper. The love of God is manifest. As we take that bread, and that bread is poured as we take that wine, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus, we are saying, This is the flesh of the Son of God. This is the, this is the blood of the Son of God. God's love is manifested for us there in a unique way. And coming to that, Taking that bread and wine, you're saying, I myself am the recipient of God's love in this way. It's important for us. It's life and death for us that we not define the love of God the way we want to. But we let God define what and how his love is manifested to us. And when we understand these chapters, we understand that we would not want to redefine the love of God in any other way than what we find here. Jesus is moving toward his death. He knows he's going to die. He knows why he's going to die. But he also is looking beyond his death. He's looking beyond in these verses by looking forward to the day of judgment. And that day 
lays beyond us. It still lays far beyond. Well, you don't know how far beyond Um, Jesus has been telling us that in chapter 24. You don't know at what time the Son of Man will return. So, Jesus is looking forward. He knows that the purposes of God will be fulfilled. And that his mission will be successful. Jesus moved towards the cross with great horror. We find him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Praying three times on his face, sweating as it were great drops of blood in utter trauma at what was going to come upon him on the cross. Because he knew that God the Father is holy. He knew that he would become something that he was not. That he would be made guilty for your sin and my sin. He knew all of what would transpire, but he knew that his mission would be successful. And so now he is looking beyond the cross to when he would come a second time and judge the world, when he would bring world history as we know it to an end. The Bible is concerned with world history. It even tells us where the world came from. In Genesis 1, it tells us about where the nations came from. In Genesis 10, it tells us about uh, the, the purpose of Israel among the nations. It tells us, it, it's, it, it brings the nations into it. It's not just a history of Israel, it's a history of the nations. And the nations then, since Jesus' first coming, have been brought into the orbit of God's wider plan. And Jesus is showing what that will mean here. As he looks forward to his second coming to judge the world. To judge the world for what they did with his first coming. Jesus was able to understand and be confident that his plan and the purposes of God were going to be successful. Because he could read it, the one thing, in the Bible. He could read it in Scripture. You will not leave this body, he said, in the grave. You'll raise it up. Where did he get that? Psalm 16, a thousand years before he was even born. Jesus drew confidence from the Scriptures. He knew that he would be successful from the Bible. What about us? Do we have that same confidence this morning from the Bible? Jesus didn't look anywhere else. He didn't look to his feelings. He didn't look to other people. He didn't try to make up some scheme of salvation in his own mind. He went to the Word. Where do we go? We go to the Bible and the promises of God that if we commit our hearts and lives to God the way Jesus did, we too will be successful. Of course, our lives don't go the way Jesus life went, do they? We are crucified. We aren't made to sacrifice for someone else. But nevertheless, the principle of I 
my marching orders from the Word is the same. I am comforted from the Bible the same way Jesus was. And so what do I do? I go to the Word of God and I find there that, that on that day, I know that I am going to be saved because I believe in the Word and the promises of God. And so Jesus gives us the first part the scene of, of judgment. That the fact that he is the one that is going to be the judge. Listen, when the Son of Man, where did we hear that? Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the clouds of heaven one like the Son of Man coming. And to him were given dominions and thrones. Thrones were set up, and all the nations of the world were gathered together to that throne. And Jesus is saying that this concerns him. Jesus himself is identifying as that same judge. He's taking upon himself the same prerogatives that God held for himself in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, in uh, uh, chapter 66, the last chapter of uh, prophecy of Isaiah, in verse 18, look at what God says here. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and all thrones, and they shall come and see my glory. What does Jesus say? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. Christianity, then, is not simply a cultural religion. It's not the religion of the Jews. It's not the religion of the Israelis or the British or Canadians or Chinese or whoever. Jesus is speaking universally here. And he is saying that the very one who is coming to judge is the Son of Man. All judgment has been committed into his hands by the Father. And Jesus speaks of himself as that judge. As the Lord. As God himself. Jesus uses that language. And he shows that his judgment will be just. Before him will be gathered all the nations. That is an incredible thing, friends. They will all be gathered there before Jesus. The Father has given him that right because he left his own glory, his own heaven. He was born in Bethlehem. He suffered and died on the cross and was cast into outer darkness for sinners like you and I. And therefore, the Bible says, God was delighted to say, you now are given the task of judging the nations, judging the world. And of course, those nations are made up of individuals. He's not going to judge 
certain particular like Great Britain, you're in. France, you're out. It's not judging the nations in that way. It's judging people within those nations. All the people, so that there will be people from Prince Edward Island who will be in and some will be out. There will be people from uh, China who will be uh, believers and unbelievers. There's a mixture all over the world today. And all of these will be gathered before this great judgment throne. For this Son of Man to pronounce judgment. That is coming, friends. When the Apostle Paul was debating with the Epicureans and Stoics in Athens, he was on Mars Hill and he was debating with them. And they, they spent nothing but debating with one another. And there was Paul. And he was there on, in Athens, Greece, the, the, the cultural center of the world. And what was the, what was the message that Paul had for the Athenians? That God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world through the man whom he has appointed, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said to them. He wasn't impressed with their philosophy and their knowledge. The home of Socrates and Plato and all the great philosophers in the past. He wasn't impressed. He came preaching Christ. He came preaching Jesus, the Son of God, as the one who will judge. This is a wonderful thing, friends. We live in a world where we cry out, as I said, for justice. We look at the world, we look down at Jesus and say, how much injustice is in the world? And our hearts break. Our hearts break with the injustice that is being committed today. Who can right those wrongs as we look down through the ages of world history? great men that have come down. Who is able to right those wrongs and to bring satisfying justice? The Bible from the beginning to end tells us that there is one person who can do that and one person who will do that. And it's God's burden. It's God's passion to bring justice. It's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. And Jesus says that here. The Son of Man come, comes in his glory with all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now think about who that judge is. It's not some cold-hearted brute who has no feelings for the people who are standing in front of him. J.C. Ryle said, to be condemned in the judgment by any would be dreadful. But to be condemned by the one who would have saved them is dreadful. 
to be condemned by any judge is a terrible thing. So to our own. But to be condemned by the one who came, was born in a manger, poverty, was cruelly crucified, buried, unjustly condemned, forsaken by all his friends. showed unremitting compassion upon prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and the, the worst of society. He welcomed them. He loved them. It is he who people are, are rejecting. It is he who is going to be the final judge. And so he doesn't come delighting in condemning It is the, the one who is the embodiment of God's love, who is made judge over all. It is he who is coming in his glory. How terrible it would be for us on that day to look into the face of our judge, the very judge who spent those 33 years upon this earth living as we calling sinners, and then for the last 2,000 years, calling sinners, calling criminals, calling the worst of the worst. And then for you, maybe, in your life, as you heard the gospel again and again, Jesus calling you and calling you, he would be your savior, not your judge. He would be your deliverer, not your condemner. And it is he who comes in judgment. Would that not be the greatest irony and heartbreak in your life and in your experience to say the one who was preached unto me in that church, who offered himself to me week after week after week in the gospel, is now my judge. And who will judge me rightly and perfectly because he is the Son of God. I must look into the face of the one who came to believe and die for lost souls. And now I see him as my judge. That's who Jesus says is coming with glory and whose judgment seek will be established. If I were to say to you one thing this day, not to make a mistake about this, don't find yourself on that day staring into this man's face as your judge, but as your savior, as your friend, as your deliverer. He says, I have no delight in the death of the wicked, but that they turn and be saved. That's what Jesus says. That's what God says. He is the one who has been given the right of judgment, before whom all the nations will pour down. And then we see the judgment scene where he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me 
stranger and he welcomed me. I was naked and he clothed me. I was sick and he visited me. I was in prison and he came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visited you? The king will answer that. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is again referring to the scriptures that he's making. As he was in the first part of it, referring to Daniel among many other verses, he also here is referring to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 37, I'm sorry, verse 34 and uh, verse 17. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Again, the prerogative that was given to God is now given to Jesus as the Son of God, as one with God, as God himself. And he separates. Sheep and goats were separated in, in Palestine because the, the sheep could stay out at night. They had an extra layer of protection. The goats couldn't bear the cold weather so much. Then they were separated from the flock and they were put inside. But Jesus is saying this is the way it's going to be at the end of time. When he will render his verdict. The sheep it says, will receive the Father's kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Now, let's get clear what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that salvation and all of these blessings are by his grace. He's not saying that if you go out and do these things, you will be saved. In other words, because you visited me in prison, you fed me when I was hungry, clothed me when I was naked. Because you did these things, you will go to heaven, and those of you who did not do them will not. But Jesus is simply saying that those who did these things already manifest the blessings that God had already put into their lives. Why are they doing these things? Because they are Verse 34, blessed by the Father. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians when he says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. In other words, how do you win salvation? You receive the gift. Just like we're doing over Christmas, you receive gifts. We receive them, we don't pay for them. But what does it look like in a person's life after having come to know this gift? They respond with their lives in acts of service for the king and his kingdom. That's why Paul goes on, not when he said, we are saved by grace. Listen to what he says later on. He says, we are his that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us to do. 
before him. Do you notice the order of events? Salvation, the gift of salvation to you and I, and then the response of salvation, which is what? The good works which he has provided for us, which he has prepared for us to do. Now, he is saying the same thing to these people. Who are the ones that are feeding the hungry, that are visiting those in prison? Those who God has called. Those in whose heart and mind are the things of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. The least of these, my brother. Now, who are they? Often people will say, well, lump everybody in the world under these, under this rubric. Every poor person, every destitute person, everybody in prison is lumped then under this idea of the least of these, my brothers. Now, we need to understand that the Bible is full of God saying that we must help the poor. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 1. He said, they told me to help the poor, which I was eager to do. I wanted to help the poor. And we ought to as well. At every opportunity, whoever they are, wherever they are in the world, out of love for Jesus. But that's not the point that Jesus is making here. The brethren of Jesus is not the world as a whole. But those who are his disciples. Matthew 10 tells us that. Matthew 10, 42, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say, he will by no means lose his reward. These little ones are those who are suffering for the cause of the kingdom around the world. And Jesus says, when you come to know me and receive my love and my forgiveness, you're interested then, not only in me, but in my family. Well, again, please don't hear me saying that we ought not to be concerned before. I absolutely we should. But it's important to recognize the context in which Jesus is saying these things. It's much like on the road to Damascus when Paul, before he was converted, was going along, and he was threatening to put Christians in prison and have them put to death. This was before he became a Christian. He thought he was doing the will of God by having Christians thrown in prison and locking them up and throwing the key away and having some put to death and Stephen. And Jesus appeared to him on the road, and he said, Saul. Paul, as he's also known, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting? Much like these people are saying, when did we ever see you when we did these things? 
Who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. How was he persecuting Jesus? How was Saul of Tarsus persecuting Jesus by persecuting the church? Not in terms of doing bad things worldwide in general, but in particular, what he was doing to the church. That's what Jesus means by the least of these my brothers. Brothers. Paul, for example, uh, speaks in 2 Corinthians about his own ministry. I am a servant with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often their death. That's what happened to the disciples of Jesus. If you were thrown in prison, you were often destitute, without food, without clothing, and so on. If you were a believer, your interest would be to help the, the preachers, the missionaries, the people who were in there spreading the word. So you would visit them. You would give them clothing and food. So much of Paul's letters are taken up with that very thing, aren't they? I thank you that you remember me in my chains. That you sent a gift again and again when I was in need. This is what Jesus means when he says, Well, you've done it unto the least of these my brothers. You've done it unto me. And so they they are they show their faith through what they do. They're not saved by what they do, they're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Just as the wise virgins were saved, they showed that they were saved how? By having their lamps trimmed. The others who had been given talent showed that they were ready, showed that they were saved by receiving the talents and saying, Look, I have five talents, I have invested it, and I've received five more. I was given ten, I invested it, I was given ten more. They were making the use of the opportunities they were given. And by doing so, they showed that they were ready. They showed that they were those expecting someone who was coming back. Right? They had a living faith already. They weren't doing these things to get a faith or to get into God's good graces. And so this description that Jesus is giving here about visiting prisoners and clothing the naked and feeding the poor is simply an extension of all those parables that he had been talking about with the foolish virgins and the wise virgins and the parable of the talents where these men, having given these opportunities, went out and made more of Save them to bring them back into a relationship with God. You can't keep it to yourself. You can't simply say, well, that's good for me, but what difference that I tell somebody else? You can't do that. And that's why many believers around the world today are sitting in prison they would rather die. Then sit. 
They would rather get thrown out of their families than They would rather lose their job than have it upon their conscience that they told nobody. You see, it shows they want to do something. And so with ourselves, it shows that we are alive because we are praying for those who are in prison in many parts of the world. We're sending money or we're sending help and aid to people like you read in the voice of the martyrs that we saw over Christmas, giving gifts to families whose their, their, their husband is sitting in a prison somewhere and their families have nothing. So you're able to send a gift package to the voice of the martyrs to help because what are you doing? You're visiting those who are in prison. You're clothing those who have no clothing. You're feeding. See, that's what Jesus is saying. General acts of compassion. You the kind of person who can say, I'm thankful for Jesus. Maybe you would say that. But if you look at your life, is that the case? Are you quite content in your life? Say that. You look at your friends, close acquaintances, and say, I've got to find a way to tell them about it. If that's not there, you've got to be really asking yourself. Were ready with their oil. They were ready. The, the, the others were ready with 
child for someone so that they could live and they come to you and say what more do you have do you have anything else Say, well, what about all the other ways? What about, oh, this is no way. I am the way. 